produced by the iLab at WBUR Boston. Amory. Yes. Confession time. Oh. You know that Michael Jackson gif of him eating popcorn and smiling mm-hmm. from the thriller video? Yeah. That's me right now waiting for this confession. I am not a sports junkie. That's it. That's your confession? Yep. That is a weak sauce confession right there, Ben. (laughs) I know. There's a much bigger one coming just in a much later episode. Oh, okay. Well, listeners, I guess I should probably remind you to please subscribe because Ben might actually have something to confess down the line. Yeah, I might have one later, but in all seriousness, this is a real confession. I am not a sports fan. I play sports. I just don't watch a lot of sports. Still, there is a phrase that even I can understand. The Babe Ruth of X. Babe Ruth, arguably baseball's greatest player of all time. The greatest of all time, the GOAT, generally considered to be a kind of larger-than-life athlete who in personality, performance, etc., just kind of transcends. If you say a person was the Babe Ruth of X, you're basically saying they're a true legend, a character that history shall not forget, which is why today we're going to talk about Gino Bartoli. Gino Bartoli who, you might ask? Bartoli at the time was kind of the Babe Ruth and Clark Gable of Italy rolled into one. That is a documentary filmmaker named Orrin Jacoby. We will hear a lot more from him in a minute. But yeah, Gino Bartoli was this really well-known Italian athlete, a national athletic hero of sorts, a cyclist who competed in the Tour de France twice, 1938 and 1948. And the kind of amazing part about Bartley is that his sports performances were only a tiny part of this much bigger story of some pretty risky and technically criminal things he did during World War II. And it's a story that most people didn't know about at the time. In fact, a lot of people, and a lot of Italians even, still don't know the story we're about to tell you. Yeah, Bartoli, the Babe Ruth of cycling, was living a little bit of a double life. A double life involving the Catholic Church, secret missions, Jewish refugees, and what may be the most honorable fake ID operation in history. Yeah, so even if he wasn't like Babe Ruth exactly, this guy's story is the epitome of extraordinary. Which is why we're going to call this episode... The GOAT! I'm Ben Brock Johnson, and this is Endless Thread, a show featuring stories found in the vast ecosystem of online communities called Reddit. I'm here with my co-producer, Amory Sievertson. We are coming to you from WBUR, Boston's NPR station, and we are making this show with a little help from our friends at Reddit. Emory, how did you find this story? So you know when you go to Google something, but then you mistype the thing that you're looking for, and you end up with something totally different, or maybe even something better than what you were looking for. Yeah, I knew you were going to ask me about this, so I looked at my recent search history, and I found ice fishing fatalities, and I think that was on purpose, (laughs) but ice fishing fertilities would probably give me something very different. Uh, Okay. (laughs) All right. So that's how this next story ended up on Reddit. A Redditor whose username is Martini was looking online for a Mario Batali cookbook. 
but he accidentally added an R in the middle of Batali's last name, and that, of course, caused a totally different book to come up, a book about the Italian cycling champion Gino Bartoli. So the book he found is called Road to Valor, a true story of World War II Italy, the Nazis, and the cyclist who inspired a nation. Wow. So we went from recipes to Nazis in one typo. Yep. And just a little bit of data here because I was curious. When the Redditor Eto Martini posted about Bartoli to the Today I Learned community, it was 11 times as popular as other stuff posted at the same time. It was like this one-day, one-hit wonder on Reddit. And it makes sense because the story is pretty remarkable. It is. And it is also a way better story than the story of Mario Batali. So we reached out to Eileen McConnell. She co-authored this book, Road to Valor, about Gino Bartoli that Eto Martini originally stumbled upon. I feel like I need to thank Mario Batali for uh, any other readers that have kind of mistaken. So Eileen became interested in Bartoli after she found a mention in an Italian newspaper. And it was all about his work helping Jewish refugees during World War II. And that sort of piqued my interest. I thought, huh, a cyclist helped the Jews. You know, I wonder how he did that. And as we did a bit more digging, we discovered, you know, not only had he helped the Jewish community, but he'd used his bicycle to do so. And I think it was that moment when we realized that here was this amazing athlete, someone who's a household name but had the secret that no one knew about. And that was no easy thing for Gino Bartoli to keep a secret. Because he was such a celebrity and very charismatic, and he was this sports hero who had made all Italians proud when he won the Tour de France in 1938. This is Oren Jacobi, who you heard a few minutes ago. Oren made a documentary called My Italian Secret, and it tells the story of Bartoli and other Italians who helped Jewish refugees. Oren and Eili are going to help us tell this story, and really to help us understand why this Italian cycling celebrity put his career and his life on the line for the resistance. The answer starts with the Cardinal of Florence. A cardinal named Elio della Costa. Now, he'd been a family friend of Bartoli, sort of a mentor to him growing up. And during the fall of 1943, this is when the Nazis had come into Italy at this point. Italy had become a very dangerous place for Jews. And there's a big community of Jews who had flooded into Italy and Florence, and they turned to the rabbi of Florence, who in turn had turned to the cardinal. The cardinal approached Bartoli and asked him if he would come and help them because they had this effort to try and save the lives of these people and to hide them in monasteries and to hide them in Florence and in other cities nearby. So Bartoli does what Bartoli does best. He gets on his bicycle. He becomes a kind of bike messenger for a network that ran between Florence and a town called Assisi, a network that helped refugees get fake papers. Okay, Emery, and these messages he is bike messaging back and forth are essentially the fake IDs? They're the ingredients for the fake IDs. Uh So the Nazis are everywhere at this point, and the only hope that Jews had for being able to really go anywhere or especially to get food ration cards without being discovered was to have one of these fake IDs. And as I said earlier, this is like the most worthy fake ID operation of all time. (laughs) How does it work? So the first thing that they did was they took a picture of every refugee in their care. And then Bartoli would go to the various monasteries and the places around Florence where the refugees were hiding and pick up those photographs. And then take them to Assisi? Right, because in Assisi there was a pair of printers. It was a father and son. And they would create the actual fake ID papers that those photographs would then be attached to. The other thing they did was they gave them a name and an address from somewhere in the south of Italy so the Nazis couldn't check up on the 
population roles and see if that person really lived there or not. So, for example, someone whose name was Vandalatus and came from Rome might get a name that sounded more Italian and, and less Jewish, might be named suddenly, you know, Gina Latanzi, and it might come from Ancona, somewhere in the south of Italy instead of Rome. Now, Bartoli was a great person to participate in this secret network in this way because he was one of the few people during the war years who had relative liberty to move around. He still trained on his bicycle so he could be seen in the countryside in Tuscany and Umbria. And if he was stopped, as, you know, many people would be, there are military checkpoints everywhere, you know, at least, usually at least someone at the checkpoint, you know, would recognize him from some of his pre-war wins. But he would just say, oh, I'm out training for my next race. And they would let him go by and they'd wave to him and they'd cheer him on. And all the time that he was riding his bike, inside the frame of his bicycle and the tube and underneath the seat and in the handlebars, he'd rolled up and hidden the false papers or rolled up and hidden the photographs that he was taking the other way. Emery, the idea that this guy is rolling up photos and forgeries and putting them into the frame of his bike and the handlebars and the seat, this is like some spy versus spy stuff. How far of a ride are we talking here? It's about 110 miles. 110? From a guy who, by the way, won the Tour de France in 1938? Child's play. Except that the roads of this region during the war were constantly being damaged or destroyed by bombs. So he had to dodge a couple of bombs on his bike. No bigs. Totally reasonable training regimen, Amory. Sure, Ben. Okay, but here's the really interesting part, and that's that Bartoli would make some pit stops along the way of this ride. And unlike a Ben or Amory pit stop, this was another opportunity to basically fight the Nazis, or at least to help other people escape them. There's a town called Tarantula in the north of Italy, which is the central nexus of of the railroad system. And... It was also on the route that Gino would ride on his way from Florence to Assisi. He would often stop off there and stop in the cafe. And there was a moment, again, late in the war, when there were trains that were still running to the south. That could You could get on a train and you could get away from the Nazis. And he one day came and really worked as a decoy, where he rode his bike into the station. So, Ben, this is the voice of Andrea Bartoli, Gino's late son, speaking in Oren's documentary. And what he's saying here is, my father played the part of a great cycling champion. Everyone gathered around him, and when the guards saw the crowd gathering, they left the trains and tried to disperse the crowd. While the guards were busy, the Jews were able to switch trains without being seen or stopped by the soldiers. Then they could travel south to seek asylum. This is amazing. He's like creating an effective diversion while he basically stops for water. And yet, I gotta say, it is chilling to think how risky all of this was. Basically, anyone who was helping an enemy of state, and you know, Jews were fell in that category, they faced risk of imprisonment, they could be killed, and you certainly risked your family as well. And at this point, uh, Bartley was married, he had a young son, 
And it was a, you know, a risk that he didn't take lightly and I think that weighed on him heavily, even though he did decide to, you know, continue to help, you know, his diaries from the wartime years when he discusses how difficult it was to sleep and basically that he was on edge and highly, highly anxious for much of that period. Hard to blame him considering all of this. Um, did his family know about it? So they knew some things. Um, for instance, he was hiding a Jewish family in their house. So okay. can't really keep that from them. But they definitely didn't know that he was a part of this network, this heroic operation that was stretched all over the countryside. But eventually, after all of that risk-taking, a group of Italian fascists caught up with him. Near the end of the war, he was questioned by the head of the the secret police, the kind of militia of, of thugs who were helping the Nazis in Florence. And someone had given him a tip about Bartoli. Bartoli gets questioned by the secret police in a minute. So Gino Bartoli has been this, like, bike messenger for this big secret network of people hiding Jewish refugees in Italy during World War II. But near the end of the war, he gets brought in by the secret police. Here's documentarian Oren Jacoby again and Eileen McConnell, the author. Oren says the secret police knew something was up. It was clear he had delivered something, he had done something, and... He was held in the, in the headquarters of the secret police where people were regularly being tortured and killed. They'd pull people's teeth out. They'd pour sort of hot liquid down their throats. They'd kind of put cigarettes out on their face or elsewhere to try to force confessions out of them. And all while in earsight, you know, of other prisoners. So Bartley's waiting down in this sort of prison waiting to be questioned. But after three days when they took him out to question him, one of the aides to the head of the secret police said, look, I, I can, can vouch, vouch for, for this man. man. If he says he hasn't done anything wrong, you should let him go. And it turned out to be a big cycling enthusiast who knew him from his pre-war time races, but also had been a supervisor for Bartoli early in the war. And they released him. But that was a narrow escape, and he could have been killed. Bartley was incredibly secretive. So during the war, other than Della Costa, you know, who had the cardinal who had asked him, no one knew, basically. So not even his wife was aware that he uh, was involved in this effort. And I had the chance to interview her. And she said to me, you know what, that was the, one of the greatest kindnesses he gave me. It was a gift. There was a great moment during the war when his wife would get upset when he would leave and wonder where he was going and wonder when he was coming back. And she told him, you know, you love the bicycle more than you love me. And Gino said, no, of course I love you more. And then joking for his son, he turned over to his bicycle and he whispered, no, I love you more. So she was always worried about him, but he didn't tell her where he was going and he didn't tell anyone where he was going. Until after the war, Gino and his son Andrea would go on trips and often they'd drive from Florence to Rome or Florence to Venice and they would pass Assisi. And Finally, one day, they got off the highway and they drove up the hill into Assisi and drove up to the, where the cathedral is and got out of the car and went, walked into the cathedral. And there were these amazing, great frescoes by Giotto, the great Renaissance painter. And they tell the story of St. Francis of Assisi, which in a way is the story of what Bartoli and these other people were doing. They were taking off their cloak to give it to the person who needed it. Here's how Gino's son Andrea remembers this. 
He says here, he started to tell me when I was about 30. Little by little, when we drove past Assisi, he would say, Giotto, I've always loved Giotto. Bit by bit, he started telling me what he'd done to save Jews and other people. He told me everything, always making me promise not to say anything to anyone. And the story that Gino told Andrea that day was that this is where he had come to deliver the fake IDs. And he would wait in this big open hall where the frescoes are until a priest came from the underground chamber where the people were hiding and would come and collect the false documents or would give Gino the photographs that he would then take off to the printers. And it was almost like he was getting something off his chest. Wow. So eventually Gino finally tells his secret. Right, but only to his son, only to Andrea. It stayed a secret to everyone else almost until he died. Yeah, and I thought that was interesting because I get why he would do this during the war, but at first I didn't really understand why he wouldn't want anyone to know about his involvement in the resistance even all these years later. But we sort of find out eventually why he feels this way. Yeah, and here's Gino in his own words. He's speaking here in 1985, so this is 40 years after the war has ended at this point. He says here, I don't want to talk about it or act like a hero. Heroes are those who died, who were injured, who spent many months in prison. Humility. Basically, he says, this is just what you do, and you don't brag about it. The Italian resistance as a whole helped save more than 10,000 people. And it's important to say that the Catholic clergy helping Bartoli were also going directly against the church leadership, which, generally speaking, turned a blind eye to a lot of the injustices happening in Italy at the time. Yeah, Gino Bartoli alone is estimated to have helped more than 800 Jewish refugees escape the Nazis. But after the war, there was one more thing he wanted to do for Italy. He wanted to win the Tour de France of 1948, a decade past his prime. Stick with us, and we'll tell you all about it after the break. A lot of people spend a lot of money on things like skincare, fast fashion, and even surgery, all in the name of self-improvement. But as the price of perfection rises, when is it time to call it quits? I'm Rima Hreis, host of This Is Uncomfortable, a podcast from Marketplace. This season, we dig deep into the financial trappings of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Okay. So Bartoli has saved all these refugees, and somehow he has continued to train on his bicycle while doing so. Talk about multitasking. Seriously. But one thing that happens in World War II is that the aftermath for most of Europe is in some ways almost as grim as the war itself. Here's Eileen McConnell again. Italy at this time is in shambles. It's sort of the, the early years after the war. The country was struggling heavily with unemployment all sorts of economic woes. And Bartoli himself was a bit at odds because he wanted to return to cycling but also realized that he was basically lost his prime racing years during the war. Not to mention he was malnourished from the food shortages. And he's old. He's in his mid-30s, which is swell for professional podcasting, 
but it's geriatric for professional cycling. So the race starts. And things are not looking good for Bartley. Nope. He's about halfway through, and he's 15 minutes behind the leader. He looks like an old man compared to his competitors, and it's starting to get to his head. But then, one night, just before one of the toughest stages of the Tour de France, he gets a phone call at his hotel. And who's on the other end of the line? It's the Prime Minister of Italy. And the Prime Minister explains and says, you know, Bartoli, Italy is in a very troubled state. Do you think you can win the tour? It would help us at this moment. You know, Italians basically, they need some good news and then sort of hangs up. This is like the opposite of the usual, no pressure, but... Right, the prime minister here is like, Bartley man, cut the crap, we need you, let's do this. And so Bartley, you know, realizes the, the responsibility that's been placed on his shoulders. And the next day rides one of the most spectacular stages of the tour and one of what's remembered as one of the most impressive comebacks. He wins that stage and he goes on to win the Tour de France of 1948 a full 10 years after his last victory. The news travels back to Italy, and it was a sort of kind of euphoria, basically, that spread through the country. And so Bartoli's victory in that stage, and he went on to win the tour, you know, was very much seen as uh, being quite important in terms of improving the mood in Italy at the time. I think one historian said he, he gave the country back its smile. This is a pretty epic comeback, worthy of Bartoli being called the GOAT. And that's why people who have heard of Gino Bartoli usually only know about his cycling, because that's the part of his story that he wanted people to know. So Ben, you remember how in the beginning I mentioned that Gino Bartoli's role in the resistance is news to even some Italians? Yep. Well, not for long, because this year, the Giro d'Italia, which is Italy's famous annual cycling race... It's starting in Jerusalem. Israel is hosting the first three stages of that race, all in tribute to Gino Bartoli and the work that he did for the Jewish community during World War II. It kind of makes you wonder what Gino Bartoli would think of all this, given that he was so humble about his involvement. Well, Gino died back in 2000. Andrea and his son died last June. So we turned to the next generation. Pronto, Lisa? Sì? Sì, ciao, sono Giacomo Bologna qui a Boston, negli Stati Uniti. Sì, ciao. Ciao, ciao come Giacomo. stai? Ciao. This is Lisa Bartoli, Gino's granddaughter. We got her on the phone with the help of our Italian-speaking colleague, Jamie Bologna. Uh, sono qui con i miei compagni, uh, Ben, che è qui. Uh, ben is here. Hi, Lisa. Ciao, ciao. Lisa is an avid cyclist herself, and she runs a blog called Bicicleta Me where she writes about her love of urban cycling and her family history. We asked her about her relationship with her granddad. She says that she and Gina would watch the Giro d'Italia on TV together. Sometimes they'd ride bikes together. But when it came to his personal life... He never really talked about his history or his story as a, as a cyclist. He was very reserved in character. He didn't like to talk about his story. So did he ever tell you if anything about his work um, with the Italian resistance during World War II? Nope. He told her a few things, she says, but he never said anything in relation to the war. 
Lisa, why do you think he kept all of these secrets for so long? And um, did it upset you that he kept those secrets for so long and didn't talk about them very much? It's something to admire about him. To have this secret for so long and not to take advantage and glorify himself for it. The Giro d'Italia is starting in Jerusalem this year as a tribute to your grandfather. Uh, what do you think of this as a tribute to him? Lisa basically says here that she sees it as a great way to honor her grandfather on a global scale, both as a cyclist and just as a human being. She hopes that this year's race will introduce a younger generation to her grandfather's story so that other people will be inspired to follow his example. Italy as a country has, even today, um, refugees and, and people immigrating to it. Um, how do you think about the refugee crisis in relation to the story of your grandfather? It's a, it's a personal question, so she's going to give you her personal opinion, but... But my grandfather and the character that he had, it didn't matter the race, the religion of the people. He was against people who were violent, and he was against the oppressors. He saved anyone who was in threat for their lives. So the message that he left to us for today is to let go of our prejudices that we all have. Do good. When he took documents and transported fake you know, documents, false documents on his bicycle, he didn't want to know the names of the people. He didn't want to know what was on the documents. He only wanted to help and save the people. It didn't matter who they were or where, but he knew that they were in risk of death. And so that, that's the message. It's a, it's a very current message. Lisa Bartoli, thank you so much for talking with us. Oh, okay. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Endless Thread is a production of WBUR, Boston's NPR station, in partnership with Reddit. Grazie to our colleague Jamie Bologna, our Italian interpreter with a very appropriate last name. Jamie was worried about his grammar. Sounded great to us, man. And also, thanks to Oren Jacoby for letting us play some tape from his documentary, My Italian Secret. There's more information about the film and about Eileen McConnell's book, Road to Valor, at our website, wbur.org slash endlessthread. Our show is a dream realized by Jessica Alpert, who, when we ask if she likes the episode we've put together, she always says... No, 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 no. Yes! Iris Adler is our executive producer, and she makes sure our stories meet the bar of... Mildly interesting. Mix and sound design by John Parati and Paul Vikas, who truly believe that... We are the music makers. <laughs>
Our web producer is Megan Kelly, who looks at our attempts at writing web copy and always says, Aw. Our intern is Chris Yulian, who, when we put him on a task, he politely says, Hold my beer. Michael Pope is our advisor at Reddit, and whenever we have our weekly meeting with him, we can all agree it was oddly satisfying. Our theme music is by Squelcher. Big ups to Redditor Leah Marie 315 who gave us permission to use her artwork for our episode this week. Head to our website for a link to more of her work. We are also on Reddit. Endless underscore thread is our username. And Redditors, if you want to make art for an upcoming episode or suggest a story to us, we love us some tips. You can hit us up there. You should know our show is produced by Amory Sievertson. I'm senior producer and host Ben Brock Johnson. I'll let myself out.